Hi, my name is Marie Lundberg and I'm here with Sam Sheen, my friend and professional colleague, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience, part two on the U.S. Anti-Money Laundering Act, now known as the AMLA. And we are joined yet again with another friend and professional colleague, Liz Slim. Hi, Liz. How are you doing today? Fine. And thank you once again for bringing me back. I so enjoy chatting with you ladies on this interesting topic. Well, we have to because the AMLA is a huge topic to cover, right? Absolutely. There's a lot going on, which is still new to everybody here. It's not going to happen immediately. As I shared in the first episode, it's going to take anywhere from two to five years for us to see the results of all the provisions included now in the AML Act. Well, don't worry about that, Liz, because it took some European jurisdictions three to five years to implement the third <laughs> AMLD, and then the fourth one came in. And some <laughs> still hasn't implemented the fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> So Liz, let's move on to whistleblowing. Now, I know this is one of Marie's favorite topics, and we do know that in the United States, there already are some whistleblowing programs, right? Like the SEC has quite a generous one, doesn't it? The SEC does have a generous one. The AML whistleblower program does exist, but it doesn't have, it's not as robust as the SEC. But now the AMLA also now provided more provisions to the whistleblower program. Basically, it does mirror the SEC, where it uh, provides, the best thing too, it provides no retaliation against the whistleblower now as well. So it, you're not allowed to harass, uh, suspend, demote that, that person. Uh, so they, they are protected with retaliation um, protect provisions. But what is now part of the whistleblower program is up to 30% uh, of the award that's collected from the penalty, if it's over a mil- million dollars, can be awarded to the whistleblower. And what they did define is whistleblower can be anyone who reports a violation that includes uh, reporters who are AML compliance officers, or if it's part of their job, such as they're an auditor or an attorney. Because prior to that, the old uh, provisions basically didn't allow anybody whose duty it was to monitor uh, the AML program to file a whistleblower compensation. And then the award, too, was capped at only 150000 So this is significantly different. But what it does focus now, it should focus on the institution, your organization, to ensure that you have a good whistleblower program. You know how to address the complaints that are coming in and involve, you know, your HR, your legal department and train employees and have good policy and procedures that everybody understands. So Liz, what if I'm working for a subsidiary or sister company overseas? and I blow the whistle, am I protected or do I have to be in America? That's a good question. I don't know, as an affiliate or a subsidiary, if it involves the parent company, if it involves something occurring here in the US, because it's, it, it has to, I probably the investigation must involve an occurrence here in the US to be investigated and to and penalize well, if they have a U.S. president, it's possible. Wow. I, Again. And how come the money isn't as much as what you get if you blow the whistle for market abuse or something going on with the SEC? Well, I, I, I met Bradley Birkenfeld, and he, he actually gave me a bookmark, which is a photograph of the $90 million plus check he was given <laughs> as a whistleblower. 
Yeah, SEC, they have had a successful whistleblower program. <laughs> Mind you, he did have to go to prison for a couple of years. But once that yeah. was out of the way, hmm. he was cooking with enjoy, gas. Yes, you can enjoy <laughs> his Source time. of funds. <laughs> Allow me to pull out this bookmark. <laughs> Anyways, Maria, I'm sorry, I digress. And I do think, look, I think it, it's good and it'd be really interesting to see if it is as effective and successful as the SEC's program has been for sure. But um, let's move over to one of your favorite acronyms, Marie. Ah, uh, yes, Sam. Let's turn to everyone's favorite topic over the last two to three years, VOSPs. And I'm not talking about those pesky little buzzing yellow insects. I'm talking about the virtual asset service providers. They are now regulated here in Europe, right? And in the process of becoming registered as well. This means that they are now having to formulate AML programs if they not have already done so earlier, of course. Liz, are there any developments here under the AMLA? Well, with the VOS, the virtual asset service providers, they were recognized as money servicing businesses because they are money transmitters. They buy or sell crypto and convert it to fiat currency. And here in the United States, they were recognized as money transmitters, so subject to AML regulations. And again, as I shared uh, in the first episode, cryptocurrency was issued a lot of guidance, you know, on what they should do for AML uh, regulations on complying with them and, and to do due diligence. But now with the AML Act, it codifies, it now turns those guidances into its mandatory. Thus, you are now required to comply with anti-money laundering uh, act regulations. You know, they had to register earlier as an MSB with, you know, FinCEN, our, our FIU unit as a MSB business. And each state was different and had their own licensing requirements. So yes, now VASP are regulated and that took effect immediately with the passing of the AMLA. So it did, you know, it basically also expanded the reach. So for businesses engaged in the trade of virtual assets that, you know, what they thought they could get away with if they didn't comply, they are now required to comply. You know, we had a lot of independent uh, money transmitters, cryptocurrency, who were penalized in the last few years for basically, you know, turning their the other way, disregarding AML regulations. So that can no longer happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing there's some, been some prosecution as well, if I'm not. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mistaken. there was. Mm. Maybe you've heard of the um, recent news, which I know that uh, a good friend of mine, John Harvey, has commented on on the uh, LinkedIn posts, which is that HM Treasury, our tax regulator, is currently considering asking people who hold virtual currency to declare it as part of their tax return, to which Mr. Harvey rather deeply identified, but its value changes from day to day. So how are you going to do that? Because the aim of it is to stop people evading tax. So, you know, do you see, do you see that being in the future in the U.S. as well? It's already mandatory. Our IRS, actually this year, Everybody that filed their taxes, the first question on the form was, did you purchase cryptocurrency? Do you own digital assets? That is now at the top of the form being requested when you file your tax return. Now, let's talk about antiquities. Now, going way back almost five years ago now, when we hosted uh, an ACAMS webinar, and we had it at the ACAMS European Conference, one of the things we talked about was the different ways in which ISIS or Daesh was uh, basically looting Iraq 
and nearby jurisdictions of their antiquities and selling them on the black market. You know, they were quite lucrative sales. And then they were suddenly popping up in private homes and antique dealers, shops, and even in museums. So for us, the 5MLD now requires businesses of that nature conduct proper AML checks, provenance of goods, and be able to have something more than just a self-attestation from the party who's provided it. So how's that going to work under the AMLA? Well, it's going to be very new, and we'll have to see how the antiquities market eventually tries to comply. Um, They might be kicking and screaming, and it's probably going to be a long process for them. But it it applies to antiquity dealers, the advisors, and consultants now to comply with AML regulations. And we understand what that means. It's who are you dealing with? What is the source of funds? Do you know, you know, who the beneficial owners are that are purchasing the antiquities? Because, you know, as you and I know, there could be ties to terrorist organizations and criminal organizations who are basically looted these countries for the antiquities to sell it on the market and make money to raise funds for their terrorist act or as profits for their criminal organizations. So that they're trying to stop that gap as well here in the United States. So let's moving on to another part of the AMLA in this case, enforcement and penalties. You know, don't do the crime if you can't pay the fine. Well, we have seen some serious fines here in Europe and there has been a lot of negative comments about fines, whether they are simply a cost of doing business and the impact perhaps doesn't drive the necessary change of the behavior of firms or sharpen the systems or controls. So what does the AMLA say about that? The AMLA added new penalties and enforcement actions as well. I'll go down the list. One of them is concealing the source of funds for PEPs. So there's this new enforcement action that states if the source of funds uh, is concealed or falsified or is misrepresented from material facts, you know, from an investigation, then that can involve prison time as well as monetary fines uh, up to a million dollars. And that includes, you know, uh, senior foreign political figures, their immediate family members or close associates. So that is, you know, a new enforcement action. But hang on. Yes. Hang on. Sorry for interrupting you, Liz. But then you need to be able to screen for those people, right, to find them. Yes. And again, is this going to be easy to identify? Also, when I read this, I said, how easy is this information to identify? Oh, and then there's caveats too. It, you know, it, it only matters is if you aggregate the value of monetary transactions, if they're a million dollars or more, and the monetary transaction is interstate or foreign in nature. And the people Again, went, huh? How do you, uh, yes. I did the huh moment too. I said, okay, we have to identify source of funds, but if it meets this criteria, how do you aggregate a million dollar of transactions and it's tied to foreign or interstate payments? I'm like, okay, they added that. I don't know how, how can anybody identify this? I'm one bank. I don't know what transactions are occurring at, you know, another bank, you know, in another state or in another country. Or just actually your subsidiary. Yes, yes. Well, tell us a little bit then though about individuals, because so we've got this very complicated way in which to financially penalize entities, but we've got an equally sort of complicated way of dealing with 
individuals who violate the requirements, right? The AMLA also now added new penalties regarding barring individuals who egregiously commit violations if they serve on the board, if they're part of senior management, or even just an employee that violated, made egregious actions in, within their institution for um, totally turning the other way, looking, you know, ignoring the fact that there is a very profitable customer that they want to retain, but may have ties to criminal elements. And yet management likes the revenue and says, you know, you cannot file a star on that customer. Customer, we will keep this relationship open and you compliance officer are not allowed to um, terminate this relationship. So it's that type of egregious action where if, if discovered, um, the Department of Justice, FinCEN regulators will now come down and they will penalize individuals now. It could be civil, it could be criminal, time in prison, um, and it could be a lot of money. Some of the clawback, too, is if bonuses were paid and pensions or monies paid to board of directors or employees, that can be uh, all they can request that amount back, too. So there's that clawback feature as well. Uh, so they're focusing on individuals now a lot. So guess what, Marie? Apparently, some of the things that they can impose is they can prohibit people from sitting on boards of any other financial institutions for up to 10 years. 10 years. They can hmm. be barred. Yes. Yes. Well, that would have changed the scenery around here based on some of the recent news. Oh, yes, ah. absolutely. Because we have seen, you know, a lot of movement, movement. Yes. People who has exit to transfer, so to speak. So moving on mm -hmm. for European businesses with a subsidiary or related business required to comply with these requirements. What sort of things will they need to start thinking about to make sure that they're global compliance programs take account of the AMLA and these new requirements and the penalties? You know, where to start, simply? Uh, you can pull the actual AML Act from the, the internet. Uh, I highly recommend reviewing that uh, to see, you know, what are those requirements now and what are your uh, obligations? For any foreign financial institution operating in the United States, you're still obligated to comply with the U.S. anti-money laundering laws. It just added a new dimension to it, some which might happen sooner than later. And then again, too, FinCEN is supposed to conduct various studies as well to see how they can help alleviate the burden to financial institutions, which I've yet to see. Again, it starts with the beneficial owner registry and to help alleviate burden to financial institutions. But again, that's going to take time. We don't know what that might mean to uh, financial institutions. And the fact too, with the loopholes in there, the fact that a client must give you the consent to access the registry. So, you know, banks have to factor in, what do you do in that instance? We create new processes and procedures, you know, do a risk-based approach. Do you manage, do you decline the customer? How do you work with customers that refuse to access the database? So those are, you know, new considerations. The new penalties, yes, I would say review the new penalties because then you have to build controls to ensure there's no gaps there to invite those penalties to occur at your institution as well. 
So Liz, thinking back to when we all started compliance, the way we would have reacted to this in the old days, and I did this with a 3MLD, right? So the first thing I did was grab the procedures, if we'd had any, and write them up <laughs> to go, <laughs> okay, here's all the stuff that's in the regulations. And of course, you know, then it dawns on you when you're first starting out your career that perhaps first trying to figure out how you're going to do it is slightly more important than stuffing it down into mm -hmm. paragraphs on paper. What would you do differently than what you would have done 20 years ago if this was the first bit of amendments you'd seen? Where would you start off on a really practical basis? I would anticipate how it's going to change the program. This is what are we currently doing? What is new that I need to review within our program to start beginning to make those changes? As you said, how is that going to change the process? How is that going to change our policy and procedures? You know, start creating a project, a, a task force to start, you know, planning ahead because you have, you're reliant on automated solutions and that might change too. How does that change the solutions? Can I work with my vendor or do I need to look for another vendor? So there's a lot of considerations you need to start considering. And then the support too. Do I need more resources? Do I involve, you know, my IT department? Uh, you have to uh, think a big picture. The whistleblower program, that involves the board of directors, it involves human resources, you know, the legal team. So, you know, that's not situated alone to compliance only. Whistleblower program opens it up to every employee in the bank and do they understand what that means? So it's situations like that, as you said, sit back and take it in. What do I need to start thinking about? How is it gonna change my program and who else does it affect? Now, a lot of these are not finalized yet. The final rules won't happen until FinCEN makes that uh, public ruling effective and gives the organization time to, to comply. So say a year from now in 2022, beneficial ownership rules will be published as final regulation. But FinCEN now will allow, allow the corporations and limited liability companies two years from that to be in compliance. Again, there's still room for what are those final rules are? How does it affect me as a bank with you know, the requirements corporations need to meet? So it's one thing to start drafting the outline, but don't make it final because you also have to review the final um, regulations when it gets printed. But, you know, there's no time as the present, right? And we all Absolutely. know that time flies when you're having fun and updating those policies and procedures. So, you know, get to it, right? Absolutely. Do not waste time. Start reviewing that now because, as you said, time flies. And before you know it, in a blink of an eye, you need to comply. And are you ready for that? FinCEN will give you time and the regulators will, you know, inquire as they do their annual exam. Institution, what are you doing now to make sure you are in compliance with the new AMLA uh, provisions? Thank you so much again, Liz, for joining us on Captivated Audience. It's such a pleasure to have you here. And I'm guessing we will have some follow-up questions on these two episodes, don't you think, Sam? Absolutely. Uh, my pleasure. I'm sure that we are all, you know, waiting for the final rules to, you know, be implemented and what that means. Stay tuned is what I say because it's not over. And there you have it, folks. Stay tuned. And if you have any 
topics you would like us to discuss on Captivated Audience, please feel free to reach out to us on our dedicated Captivated Audience LinkedIn page or to captivatedaudience.eu. Until next time, take care, stay safe.